first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those uh, who came were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. It is my favourite parable and it does my head in. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what happens when human economy meets God meets God's economy? Uh, what happens when the human way of thinking meets God's way of thinking? Well, they clash, and the clash is expressed in a parable like the one you just heard. Let me pray. Father, may we never settle for an understanding of grace that leaves us flat or that leaves us untouched, un undisturbed. May we be forever interrupted 
by divine grace, by your grace to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And may this parable unsettle us in every good way. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Our theme of the year, which we're discussing, discovering and delighting in, is God's grace. And uh, we've been looking at it so far over a number of weeks, and we will continue to do so uh, during the term after Easter. We'll be looking at the book of Galatians for this reason. But grace is life. Grace is when you are loved without regard to your status or your wealth or your age or your school or your job. Grace is when you are loved without regard to your skin colour or your gender. Grace is when you're loved without regard to your past, your addictions, your stupid choices. Grace is when you are loved without regard, in the first place, to your sin. That's why Paul says to Titus, in Titus 3 verse 4, he says, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he's talking about the life of Jesus, God saved us. And then he says, not because, not because of the righteous things we had done, no, it's by grace alone, but because of his mercy. Paul gets to the heart of it when he says, when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. When his enemies, Christ died for us. So grace is when you're embraced, when you ought to be rejected. Grace is when you're loved, even when you're unlovable. Tim Keller, I believe quoting someone else, says, you are more wicked and flawed than you ever dared believe, and yet you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. This is unheard of in the world in which Jesus lived, where you bestow a gift on the worthy. That's the purpose. When you give a gift, you give a gift to the worthy, because the purpose of the gift was to reward right behaviour, to secure conformity to a goodwill. Not just, it wasn't about, it could have been about control. It didn't have to be about control. It could just be, you're doing the right thing and I give you a gift. A little bit like a bonus at the end of a job. And that's why you don't eat with tax collectors and sinners in Jesus' world, because you don't want to reward the wrong sort of behavior. But God's grace is disturbing. Grace is at the center of God's heart, and this is good news, this is the gospel. And I want, to, I want to explore it, God's grace, in its disturbing beauty tonight. Robert Louis Stevenson said, There is nothing but God's grace. We walk upon it, we breathe it, we live and we die by it. It makes the nails and the axles of the universe. In other words, if you don't know God's grace, you don't know how the universe works. You have normal human structures like deserving things and wages and approval conformity and such things. John Newton discovered the grace of God. He was a slave trader, became a Christian. When he wrote Amazing Grace, he had to pause in the first line of his song to add some words. If you sing Amazing Grace or if you know Amazing Grace, the sentence structure is simple. It's grace saved the wretch like me. I'm the wretch, grace saved the wretch like me. And he was a wretch, a slave trader. But what he actually ended up writing, like a poet who understands something beautiful, he said, amazing grace, open brackets, how sweet the sound, close brackets, 
that saved the wretch like me, the most glorious brackets in Christendom, along with um, my sin brackets, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. I love the brackets. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. We need more brackets in life. Grace, for many of us, doesn't seem like life. Grace is merely what you say before dinner. Graceful is what you call a swan on water. Gracious is how you describe a person with manners. Oh, she's gracious. And grace is a name for a girl. And yet we might not realise how disturbing grace truly is. What do I mean? Well, listen to this sentence. God says to you, I love you by grace alone. I love you by grace alone. I love you, but only because I'm being generous. And you say, what are you saying to me? You mean I don't deserve it? You mean I'm not lovable? You love me because of grace alone? You see how disturbing grace may be. So grace is weird. It goes against the human grain in every way. What is intuitive in life is to treat someone according to their deeds. And we might call that a wage, amongst other things. What is counterintuitive is to shower love upon someone despite their deeds. We call that grace. It's weird. What's intuitive and logical is to say that the last shall be last and the first shall be first. What's counterintuitive but called grace is to say the last shall be first and the first shall be last, which is exactly what Jesus says at the beginning of our parable today in Matthew 20, that's Matthew 19 verse something, and the end of the parable, Matthew 20 verse 16, bookended by this illogical, counterintuitive and weird phrase, the first shall be last and the last first. And that's because the Israelites in Jesus' day had damaged grace. They should have known what grace was about from the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 7, read a moment ago, I loved you because I loved you, not because you were big or grand or I showered grace upon you out of, my, out of something in my heart. And I believe Jesus wanted to expose the contradictions of his grace. And he does it by telling this unsettling parable. In fact, I believe then and even tonight, he wants to blow out of the water your, our worldly, picky, minuscule, small-hearted, human economy, way of living life. And as we look at this parable, I'm going to retell it in a moment, you have a task, and the task is, what do you like or dislike about this parable? What do you find clarifying or disturbing? How do you respond? Jesus says, the many who are first will be last, and many who are the last will be first, in 19 verse 30. It's a strange thing to say. Then he says, let me explain what I mean by that. He says in 20 verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like, that's a favorite construction of Jesus. You want to know what God's economy is like? You want to know what God thinks? You want to know what, how God does things? You want to know what things happen in the realm of God? Well, try to get this. It's like 
a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So God here is the landowner. The landowner gets up at six in the morning, very early in the morning, six in the morning, and let's say he gets on his bus, he, you know, the bus is empty and he's driving the bus into town, he's behind the wheel, and he goes into the marketplace to hire workers for the vineyard at the crack of dawn, and in verse 2, he agreed to pay them a denarius, a currency in the day, a denarius for the day, and sent them, those workers, into his vineyard. So he piles them onto the bus and barrels back to the vineyard, sets them out and sends them to work. Let's say a denarius is a day's wage, and just because the maths work for me and I'm lousy at maths, let's call it 300 bucks for the day of labour. Let's call it $25 an hour, which, you know, unskilled labour, but pretty good. $25, 12 hours work, 300 bucks, verse 2, they think, great, they go to work in the vineyard, that's a fair wage, they jump on the bus and off they go, there's no surprises there. Any of you who run a business goes, you know, there's more compliance there, but, you know, the basic principles in place, do you want to work? Yeah, here's the wage, yep, go to work. Nothing's changed then to now, in principle. But in verse 3, we find out at 9 in the morning, he gets back on the bus and goes back in and sees others standing in the marketplace doing nothing, we're told. You could ask the question, did he miscalculate the amount of work needed? Maybe there were not enough people at 6 in the morning. Maybe he filled the bus and went, okay, were the first lot slack, not getting the work done? We don't know. But this time in verse 4, notice this, it's very important, he says, you go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. But he doesn't nominate an amount. But people need work, so off they go. You can imagine the bus, the second bus rolls into the vineyard, a new busload of workers arrive and there's a bunch of people who've been working there for three hours, maybe they're looking for a break, but they say, well, that's good, we need a hand. They tell themselves what anybody in the human economy says, which is, Okay, they'll work, doesn't matter, they've arrived late, but they'll get $25 an hour like me. So they'll get, let's say they work nine hours, they'll get $225. No problem there. But the landowner goes out at noon in verse 5. It's um, midday, it's halfway through the day. It's the sixth hour in the, in the language Jesus used. And so when that bus rolls in, they must be getting half of what the people got who arrived first thing in the morning. Six hours of work, $25 a day, $150, that's half of $300. Uh, the crowd that have been working there for six hours think they're getting half of what we're getting. They tick a box, they go on. But at 3 p.m., at the ninth hour, he does the same thing in verse 5. The landowner seems very eager, very passionate. Of course, when that busload of, of workers arrive, there's not a, lot, not a lot of time left in the day. Uh, but they're getting, you know, a smaller amount, and then the most, maybe 75 bucks, and the most bizarre thing happens, the bus driver rolls back into the marketplace at really the proverbial 11th hour. Is that where this comes from, in verse 6? And he finds some people standing around. What were they doing? Sleeping in? They're doing nothing? Something the landowner says, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? What, are you lazy? And they say, well, nobody's hired us, so they're not the go get they're not like front-footed people. And he said, you also go and work in my vineyard. And they turn up one hour before quitting time, one hour. The sun is coming down, so there's no more heat of the day. 
I wonder if this lot got tired halfway through and asked for a drinks break at 5.30. There's a bunch of people there who have been working all day at the vineyard and they say, well, that's odd, but the landowner is free to employ somebody for an hour. They must be getting 25 bucks. Now, there's some strangeness in the parable, but not much. You don't know what he's doing, but, you know, nothing really happens until the twist at the end. In verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, and then one foreman, maybe there's more involved, but let's just imagine for a second there's one foreman, so they're forming one queue. So begin by paying the last ones hired and then going on to the first ones hired. And you've got hundreds of workers there. Who knows, dozens, maybe hundreds of workers there. One foreman. And the ones that are hired last are the ones that are going to get home first, you know, in time for the 7 p.m. news, a couple of shows on Netflix. And the first ones who've been bearing the heat of the day, a point they make in, in a few moments' time for obvious reasons, they're standing in the line for much longer. It, who Hand up here who thinks it feels wrong. Thank you. And the rest of you are just shy because it does feel wrong. There's no way it makes sense. Well, maybe, listen to this, verse 9, the workers who were hired at about 5 in the afternoon came and each of them received a denarius, a day's work. So the ones that were hired at 5 in the afternoon, the, last, the lazy ones, they were given a denarius, a day's wage, 300 bucks. And they look at the $300 in their hand and they go, is this serious? And they were hoping for two, maybe three beers with their 25 bucks. And they're like getting dinner for their family. I mean, they're paying, they're paying, I mean, they're like cheering. So the laziest ones appear to be getting $300 for an hour. By the way, that's a good wage. Do you earn $300 an hour? That's a good wage. Think about this, of course. As they're standing in line, you can imagine there's a new pay rate whispering down the line. It's $300 an hour. It's a denarius for an hour, not a denarius for a day. Maybe Chinese, maybe, I can't say that, can I? <laughs> Take that back. Maybe there's whispers down the line of the new pay rate. And in fact, the pay is going up. This guy's profoundly generous, weirdly generous. $300 for one hour's work. So the ones who started at 3 p.m., they're getting, I've done the calculations, they're getting $600. The ones who started the day at 6 a.m., they're getting $3,600 for their day of unskilled labor. That's what they think they're getting. Now, wouldn't it have been interesting if Jesus had told the parable with an ending like that, a parable about grace, where the pay goes up? You say, well, that sort of makes some... I, I wouldn't have minded that parable. God is more generous than you deserve, like overflowing with generosity. You thought you were getting 600, you got 3,600. God is not miserly. His love and his grace just goes up and up and up and up and up. The parable might have worked that way. 
but it doesn't. The pay rate gets given down, and verse 10, so that we get told they think they're going to get more. So verse 10, when, so when, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius, all the way down the aisle, denarius, 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 day's wage, all the way down the aisle. So they only get $300 for their whole day's work. Understandably, in verse 11, when they received it, they began to grumble. That verb belongs to Pharisees in the New Testament. That's important. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Very reasonable, isn't it? Hand up, this time don't be shy, hand up who thinks that their complaint is reasonable. Malcolm, surely you think it's reasonable. <laughs> I'm going to talk to you afterwards. You've got thoughts about this. But I want you to notice in verse 13 the warm and beautiful tone of the landowner. Verse 13, but he answered one of them. I love that, by the way. He could have got the whole group together, the crowd that was on the bus at 6 a.m., and said, come on in, I need to talk to you. But he doesn't. Maybe in the hearing of everybody, he, he looks at one of them in the eyes. And I like to think that Jesus, risen from the dead, present with us here tonight, is looking at one of you in the eyes. He said to one of them, verse 13, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius. That's not the issue. You agreed to it, and it was a fair wage. So, verse 14, take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. And then he looks at the same man in the eye and then looks into his soul. And maybe Jesus, risen from the dead, present with us today, is not just looking in the eyes. Maybe he's looking at you in the soul with all your sense of fairness and perhaps entitlement and some grief over the way you feel like you've been treated. And maybe he looks at you in the eyes and says, in verse 15, he says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Don't tell me how to run my world, my vineyard. Or, penetrating further into his soul, or is it this? Is it in the end you're bitter? You've got a bitterness within, an envy, because I am so generous. Because if you think about it, that's all that's happened here. And so Jesus says, the last will be first, and the first will be last. How do you respond I'm going to give you like 30 seconds to just ponder and think and ask what do you like, what do you dislike, what do you find disturbing or profound. I'll give you 30 seconds. Those playing at home, don't get a coffee. Here are four things I think are true about this parable, and they're on page seven of your orders of service. First, 
grace is troubling. It's meant to be. Grace is meant to dislodge something, hardness within. It's meant to do that. Grace is meant to turn your world upside down. It's meant to make you say, wait, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You're supposed to say that. And I don't know about you, but I read this parable. Yeah, I, last night I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, won't the 11th hour workers take advantage of you tomorrow morning? Won't they, won't they be like, if I just turn up at 5, 5 p.m., I'll get, what's the point in arriving at 6 a.m.? Won't they all do that? I mean, wages, fair wages, work for a reason. And so here in the parable, the whole system is thrown into chaos by this landowner's generosity. So the first thing I think to say from the parable is, you're meant to be bugged. It's meant to get under your skin. If you walk out of here ho-hum about grace, then it's not grace that you have understood. Number one. Second truth from the parable. God is a pursuing God. What kind of God God is, this gives you a glimpse into it. God is a pursuing God. It's God who's out in the marketplace in the story. In my retelling, it's God driving the bus to go find you. You might think, surely a landowner has employees who could go and do all that. And he goes in not just once, not twice, not three times, but five times he goes in. And by 6 a.m. in the morning, he's got a bus, busload of people who could work. He could throw one of them into the bus and say, go and pick up some more people. And we know he has a foreman who could go in and get some people. But the landowner is out there gathering people to work in his vineyard all day, wanting to fill his bus. God seems, in, in this parable to me, more interested in the actual workers and in being generous than he does about the prophets or even about the vineyard. It appears here that the landowner's concern is about generosity to people, to the labourers, not unto the crop or indeed to his own profit. He found the workers, perhaps not necessarily because he needed them, but because they were standing around and needed hiring. And he goes and says, you go and work in my vineyard, I want you there. Here's what I think you find out, that even though I am perhaps one of the lazy people in the kingdom of God, he pursues me, and 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 he pursues me. Perhaps being right here tonight is the pursuit of God for you. And I'll tell you what the pursuit of God is. It's Jesus coming after you. It's good news. It's Jesus. Jesus is God turning up to the marketplace and showing his love, his divine love. And how far would he go to find me, to love me, to shower me with uh, forgiveness and justification and hope in his resurrection? The answer is all the way to the death of his son. That's love. That's divine love. That's pursuit. That's grace. Secondly, God's a pursuing God. Third, on page seven, God is fair. The story is beautifully crafted. 
little bit like Job, by the way. The story is beautifully crafted, so all the, thing, the pieces of the puzzle are set in place in the first few lines. Because your objection at the end, that this is unfair, is actually answered at the beginning. Verses 1 and 2 clearly state that the landowner will do everything that's right by the guys working first. I'll pay you what is right, he says to the people at 9 and noon. And he, with the people at 6 a.m., he's saying, I'll pay you a fair wage. You agreed to work for a day at a great rate. That's just, it's not unfair, and you and I both know it's not unfair. I want you to imagine for a second that uh, you were in a pub the night before this took place, and you were sitting down with people who were planning to turn up to the marketplace at 6am and find a, a landowner who's going to put them to work in the vineyard. And you meet them and you say, are you hoping to go and work in Blo Joe Bloggs' vineyard? And you say, yeah, we're hoping he'll come in the morning and pick us up and we can work a full day's wage and get, we're hoping, a denarius, because that's a fair wage. And you say to them, actually, he's a very, very good landowner and he pays very well, more than others. But he's also profoundly generous. Did you know, that just last week, that same landowner that you're hoping to work for tomorrow, that same landowner gave, I'm just throwing a figure out, 10,000 bucks to a homeless woman because he felt like this gift could get her on her feet and make her safe and set her up for uh, a more whole and happy life. And you hear that, do you think he's unfair because tomorrow you expect him to pay you 300 bucks? You see what he's doing? Now, he can do that. He can hand to a woman $10,000 to get her on her feet and give you $300 the next day for working all day in the vineyard because that's a fair wage. He's free to do what he wants with his own money. Give a woman a chance pay you a wage that was significantly smaller. Significantly smaller. The human heart, I think, gets exposed by this story. It's a good question to ask. When does human nature get exposed for what it is? When do the contradictions of the heart surface? I think it's when you compare yourself to someone else with a sense of entitlement and you say in your heart, I deserve more than them. No, just as the landowner is fair to the workers, God is and always has been fair to us. In fact, be careful if you want to apply fairness to God, because who knows if a holy God, who knows if he doesn't think you're such a hot shot? Who knows if a holy God discovers what I've discovered many years ago, which is that I'm a sinner. I deserve hell, and yet he loves me which is the fourth point, the most important, God is generous, outrageously generous, disturbingly gracious. And I think that's the point of the parable. Is God not able to do with his love what he wants? Is the landowner not free to do with his money what he wants to do with his money? He's not free. Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace?, because he knew about the brackets. Philip Yancey is a US author, and he wrote a book about grace, and he looks at these parables and other ones like it, and he calls this the new, the new mathematics of grace. 
In other words, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense in a human economy, but it does in God's economy, in God's world, in the kingdom of God, and this is good news. I'm hoping this takes away every sense of entitlement that you have, that I have. It's the Pharisees, in the end, who grumbled with a sense of entitlement. And Jesus uses wages here to talk about something that really isn't a wage, the generosity of God to sinners like me. He puts the two worlds together to jolt you. In Romans chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. In other words, your boss has to pay you. However, to the one who does not work for justification, for the embrace of God, who does not work, doesn't try to earn it, but rather trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness, a gift, not as a wage. In fact, Paul will go on a couple of chapters later and say, actually, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the grace of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, given without regard to intelligence, money, status, gender, skin colour, your past, addictions, sin, mental health. He just loves you. This, of course, is why Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's why Jesus died on the cross for me, to shower me with what I don't deserve. May I be least in the kingdom of God. And when you work out that it's all about grace, you stop counting and you stop accounting and comparing, and you take your next breath in of God's grace, and with it, forgiveness and hope, and you thank God with empty hands, because He did not have to forgive you. And so this evening, you breathe in life in His name. And it takes a parable like this one, a disturbing one, to jolt you, to put two worlds together, I believe that a person who doesn't get this story, even if you don't get it in full, you can still get it in part, you can understand what's being said, but a person who rejects this story will leave the room thinking, in the end, it is about me, and your heart remains the same. I think this parable evokes a reaction. God is gracious to the last. And it causes us, us to reevaluate, like so much of what Jesus says, if Jesus doesn't make you reevaluate things, everything, life, then this is a problem. When I was a youth minister, I ran a Bible study for boys in year 10, 11, and 12. Andy was in a mirror group to the one I ran. And we looked at this parable, and with these 17, 16, 17-year-old boys, the group divided in half. It was a lively discussion. The group divided in half. There was a group that says, this is stupid. It makes no sense. And there was another half that says, I mean, they hadn't even got to work. <laughs> they said, no, no, it says something profound about God. And by the way, I can get a, a list out from that, that period, and I can go through the list. And Andy and I could do this together. We could go through the list, and we could say that every person who said it was stupid is now currently not a follower of Jesus. And every person who said in that group, it makes some sense, is currently a follower of Jesus. It ended up being a sort of litmus test. The parable, in the story Jesus told, he doesn't say what happens 
tomorrow morning because I don't know what happens tomorrow morning in the parable. I really don't. And I think the parable is meant to let you sit in one thing about the grace of God. There's more to say about grace. I'm going to be saying that throughout the year. Jesus doesn't say what happens next in the parable, but I know what happens next because I've read the New Testament. Let that grace go to work on you. Let it seep inside of you. Let God's Spirit quicken a fire within you from an ember that exists tonight, and then grace will really go to work on you. Let's pray. Father, no matter where we come from and come into the room tonight, some of us are believing and convicted and some of us are not sure and we're doubting, we don't know where we stand. But I pray that either way, your grace might prompt, push, disturb, challenge, and yet at the same time comfort us, save us, draw us close to Jesus. Father, tonight we choose Jesus. We choose the grace offered in Jesus Christ. We choose life. Choose it in his name. Amen.